Thanks for listening to the Secular Hubcast, a podcast made possible through a grant from the American Humanist Association. This show is a project of the Secular Hub, a Denver nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting community, altruism, reason, and education across the diverse secular community of the Front Range region. For more information and to become a member, visit secularhub.org. Hello and welcome to the Secular Hubcast. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. Today I'm going to finish up our conversation on the El Paso Shooters Manifesto. If you recall the first part, I went over what he said in the manifesto, uh, what his main points were, and uh, I didn't provide a lot of analysis or feedback. In this episode, I'm going to focus solely on two things. I'm going to fact check him. I'm going to find out how accurate he is in his claims, and I am going to break down the main thrust of his argument and then take it head on to determine if it is uh, valid, sound, and if his conclusions are therefore correct. So let's, let's jump right in. Initially, he describes what he calls an invasion. Now, he's mostly concerned about Texas because that's where he lives, but he's talking about uh, Hispanic immigrants and their role in Texas society and the United States as a whole. So I wanted to fact check him on that and find out if there's any validity to what he's saying. So I don't think that there's any way that we could call this an invasion. So clearly he's uh, being hyperbolic there or he is misunderstanding what's happening. But let's go over some Hispanic population facts. So the Hispanic population is growing in the U.S. However, the rate of increase has slowed since the 2000s due to lower birth rates and less immigration. Um, The Hispanic population is growing in Texas. It is currently at 40.4% of the population. And Hispanic residents are projected to be the highest population in Texas by 2022. Currently, I believe the Caucasian population is 42%. And then there are some, the rest of the percentages are broken up into other ethnicities or races, however you want to describe that. Here's an interesting note. According to economic researchers, there is no definitive negative impact on the economy, jobs, or wages by immigration. The truth is that our economy is too complex to give any definitive answers in this regard. One thing we can say is that a growth-based economy, i.e. more people, more consumers, more workers, more taxpayers, and more innovation, all positively correlate with increases in immigration and the population as a whole. So all the indicators that we have tell us that immigration provides a net benefit for the country, Local effects of immigrations do vary, though, and can show decreases in economic growth locally. The groups most likely to see decreases in wages are prior immigrants and native high school dropouts. So people that immigrate here tend to affect the other people that have immigrated here earlier. As nations age and birth rates decline due to higher quality of life, Immigration populations tend to increase the workforce, which is widely agreed by economists to help the economy. So if we look at, is there a a Hispanic invasion 
into the U.S. and specifically Texas? I think we can say no. I don't think that we could call it an invasion. I will say that we are seeing growth in our Hispanic population here in the United States. We're seeing that they do have high birth rates, um, and they are projected to be the majority in some of our states, Texas being one of them. Uh, Does that add any validity to his statement? No. Um, If we recall, Mexico, Texas used to be Mexico. (laughs) So it, you know, that's something to think about. Uh, We had a war with Mexico and we took Texas from them. Um, Many of the Hispanic population there probably lived there before we waged war on them. So another one of his claims, and I I jump around a little bit, but uh, I try to stay themed here. Um, and we touched on it already, that Hispanics have higher birth rates than the rest of the population on average. Uh, This is actually true. Uh, Hispanics have the highest birth rate of any U.S. demographic. However, it is on the decline. His next claim, that immigration will make automation issues worse. The automation of jobs will be increased due to the immigrant population. Um... This is a completely unfounded claim and doesn't seem to go with any of the data that I found at all. Automation will likely compete with the jobs traditionally held by immigrant workers. The automation of jobs will not be affected by immigrant populations, however. The issue is between workers in general and automation, not immigrants specifically and automation. The projections indicate that unskilled labor will be most affected by automation and AI. And traditionally, immigrants have held unskilled positions. If those jobs are no longer available to any unskilled laborer, that would include any unskilled laborer, then that would include the immigrant population along with a large swath of the United States population, or if you want to call it the... I'm not trying to separate our immigrant population from our non-immigrant population. I'm just saying the whole population... Of the United States or the United States population as a whole. It stands to reason that less immigrants will come here if there are no jobs for them due to automation. So in his manifesto, he initially discusses automation as a concern and he paints it as a bad thing that it will cause job loss uh, nationwide. Um, And the projections are that automation will, in fact, replace many American or many workers in our economy. He also states that automation will take away, it'll eliminate the need for new migrants to fill unskilled jobs. Um, so he also sees this trend and believes it to be good because it will take away, it will take away the demand for unskilled labor, and therefore migrants will not be able to find work. And so, why would they come here? So. Will immigration make the automation issue worse? Uh, I don't see how. And his claim that the automation of jobs will be increased due to the immigrant population, that is completely unfounded as well. If anything, the immigrant population will likely be disincentivized by automation to move here as far as moving here for economic reasons. Um If they're looking for basic human rights, if they're looking to escape bad situations in their home country, I don't see how automation is going to affect that. So at the very least, we can't say for sure how this will affect immigration. We could probably postulate that fewer 
unskilled positions in our economy uh, would disincentivize immigrants to come here that are looking for unskilled positions. Uh, but people come here for all kinds of reasons. He claims that uh, as much as half of our jobs will be automated away. Um, I wanted to fact check that statistic that it would be, f you know, 40 to 50% of our jobs will be automated away. The truth of the matter is, is it's still unknown how many jobs will be automated and how this will affect the job market and the overall economy. Some forecasters and industry experts have predicted uh, as high as 40% of jobs will be automated by 2035. AI and automation will not just affect low-skilled jobs, uh, but low-skilled jobs are thought to be the most affected. However, many data, analysis, data analyst positions, accounting positions, tax preparation positions, and highly skilled jobs like doctors and strategists are likely to be automated as well. We're already seeing that in the medical field, for instance, that uh, IBM's artificial intelligence is the most accurate uh, predictor of lung cancer. And as far as lung cancer is concerned, the AI that they're using to diagnose lung cancer is more accurate than uh, its human counterpart at this point. So his concern and his level of concern about automation does seem to be validated. However, his tying it to the immigrant population is flawed, as we discussed earlier. He claims that Hispanics rely on public welfare systems more than other groups. Um... This is factually inaccurate. So Hispanics represent the second largest welfare group behind African-Americans by percentage. But if you're looking at total number of welfare recipients, whites have the highest total number of welfare recipients at 25 million. Hispanics have the second highest at 18 million. So they do not in any way rely on our public welfare system more than other groups. If you take it by percentage, they do not. If you take it by total numbers, they do not. Uh, another one of his claims, the UBI or the Universal Basic Income, or any government program for that matter, has a greater chance of success with less people in the United States. This is also factually inaccurate. Government programs are funded with tax revenue. All indicators report that increases in population increase the net tax revenue. So this is just a false statement. Um, it is not true that the fewer people we have in the United States... Uh, the better success our public programs have or the better chance of success our public programs have. It's to be to be quite frank, it's 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 a more complex issue than he's breaking it out to be. And there's a more complex answer than what I provided. But if you just take generally speaking, a larger pool of people is able to support public programs better than a smaller pool of people. Another one of his claims. So Democrats are for open borders. Now we talk about him later and his his use of language, and this is sort of one of those sloppy language statements. We don't know. This is too broad of a statement. But I wanted to get an idea of how they Democrats versus Republican view immigration and, and border security. So what I did find was that Democrats are largely divided on exactly what open what open borders entails. But it's true that Democrats tend to welcome immigrants because of the net benefit to our economy. So the Democrats tend to look at the data. They tend to, to listen to what economists say. And almost all of our indicators show that 
immigrant populations benefit our economy. Republicans are also divided on immigration, uh, largely, but tend to want stricter border policy, especially when it comes to our border with Mexico. So the Republicans seem to be very concerned about the southern border, not so concerned about the Canadian border. Um, and they do, they do tend to want stricter border policy. Um, so when he states Democrats are for open borders, that's a little bit too general. Um, but what we could say is that Democrats tend to take the data at face value and say the data shows that immigrant populations provide a net benefit to our economy and our overall quality of life. And so we want more immigrants or we are fine with the immigrant flow that we have or we don't see a need to artificially restrict that flow. Republicans do seem to want to, they don't seem to be as data-driven and they seem to want to have stricter border policies for reasons that they drum up. So they claim that these are bad people for some reason or another and they want to keep them out. All right, so... Another claim that he makes is by decreasing the number of people on the planet, we give ourselves a better chance of conserving resources. Uh, this is true. This is true. I say it reluctantly because decreasing the number of people on the planet, there's a lot of ways to, to do that that don't involve murder. So I'm not trying to support any idea of murder, but it is true that the fewer number of people on the planet generally leads to fewer resources being used. Uh, another claim that he makes is that the Second Amendment gives us the right to shoot immigrants. The Constitution gives us the right to kill others. Uh, this is false. Um, he, he points directly to the Second Amendment as what gives him this right. The Second Amendment doesn't say anything about killing people. Uh, it does say that you have the right to bear arms under a well-regulated militia. Um, so this is just factually inaccurate. The, Constant, the Constitution, along with the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, codifies our human rights, but, but does not give them to us. The Second Amendment says nothing about giving us the right to kill others. The Declaration of Independence specifically acknowledges our right to life and recognizes that our right to night that our right to life cannot be taken away. The Bill of Rights modifies this slightly to say that our right to life cannot be taken away without due process of law. So, if anything, our founding documents codifies our right to life and specifies that if we are to take a life, if the state is to take a life, that they need to do it under due process of law. I personally disagree with that, but... Uh, if you're looking to the documents to find a warrant to kill or a license to kill, uh, you're not going to find it. He certainly didn't go through due process with his murder victims. Another bizarre statement that he makes is that race mixing destroys genetic diversity and creates identity problems. Uh, he he kind of throws this in as a, just a, a statement as if it's true and doesn't go into any detail on what he means by genetic, genetic diversity or what identity problems he's referring to, if, if any. So uh, genetic research suggests that race is largely a social label and that ancestry is more important factor in determining genet genetic diversity. 
To be clear, the African population, all considered black by race, are the most genetically diverse group on the planet. Those that are in Africa that never left Africa, that is. Their race doesn't factor into their genetic diversity. Their location and population do. The smaller groups that moved out of Africa 50,000 years ago, roughly, stopped mixing with their African relatives and thus became less genetically diverse. So because smaller groups of people intermixing are less genetically diverse, oh, and pardon me, this is because smaller groups of people that are intermixing become less genetically diverse than larger groups of people. So by mixing races in our current populations, humans tend to receive a genetic advantage due to the different local genetic adaptations. So, for instance, those groups of people from Southeast Asia that have uh, adapted a genetic resistance to the Zika virus would benefit the groups currently in America facing outbreaks of of Zika if they were to, quote-unquote, race mix. Um, Now, the the, uh, groups in America, in the Americas, which would be Central and South America, um, that are facing Zika outbreaks would hugely benefit if Southeast Asians were to move there. And in the next few generations, we would see a genetic advantage due to increased genetic diversity. So the key to genetic diversity is to interbreed with as large a group as possible from as many different global locations as possible. The smaller the groups and the more local, the less genetically diverse they will become. Uh, so this doesn't have to do with race as much as it has to do with populations of people. Identity problems, when considering race, as mentioned, are mostly socially imposed. So if you live in a group of people that focus on labeling you as a specific race, and if that race is thought of negatively, then you will have a higher potentiality for identity problems. Now, I'm using these words generically, sort of, because he used these words generically. I don't really know what he's talking about. So I had to do quite a bit of research just to get something to grab onto that made sense in relation to what he was saying. So while our shooter doesn't seem to go into detail of of exactly what an identity problem is, we can reasonably conclude that any identity problem associated with race is likely due to another racial group creating the problem. In other words, the identity problems between black and white mixed people or people of a person that has one black parent and one white parent, the identity problems that they faced in America are largely due to stereotypes associated with whatever race they happen to look like. So if they have darker skin and curlier hair, they are labeled black. If they are light-skinned with straighter hair, they are labeled white. Any identity problems they face would then be directly related to the people around them and how they view people of different races. So these identity problems are not because of race mixing, as he puts it, They're because of people like him who view other races as in some way problematic. So that's as far as I got into the fact-checking. He really goes on and on about a lot of different things and makes a lot of claims without backing any of them up. So I didn't have time to fact-check him in in his entirety, uh, nor did I want to take the time. I think as a critical thinker, we can cut a few corners, and I'll explain why. I base my 
sources, my news sources and my information sources on on how accurate they've been accumu- uh, over a period of time. So for instance, if if I'm watching Tucker Carlson and I fact check a few of his facts and three out of four of them turn out to be false or sloppy, then I can write Car- Tucker Carlson off as not factual, not somebody I need to pay very close attention to. Now, that's not to say that Tucker Carlson isn't going to say something unique or isn't going to make a factual claim. But if I'm looking for factual information, I'm not going to look to Tucker Carlson. Now, let's contrast that with someone like Arn Ra. Arn Ra talks a lot about uh, diversity, genetics, evolution, um, and cladistics, right? If I want to know about where I came from and what clades I belong to and how diverse I am and so on and so on, I can look to Arn Ra and I can I can basically fact check him and he's almost 100% correct. The only ways that I've ever found that he's not correct are that he takes a certain side of an ongoing evolution debate. So there's a debate between evolutionists about which clade we belong to, maybe from some 15 or 20 million years ago. He has chosen a side based on certain parameters. He reports that that's which clade we belong to. He's not incorrect. He just has picked a side where scientists as a whole haven't decided yet, or there's some kind of controversy. I tend to get my information from specific people who are experts on that specific topic. So if I want to learn about evolution, I go to Arn Ra, I go to Richard Dawkins. If I want to learn about philosophy and critical thought, I go to Matt Dillahunty. I don't go to uh, William Lane Craig, for instance. You can fact check these people initially when I'm so initially when I'm determining whether or not I should listen to somebody and take take on board what it is that they're saying. I listen to a few of their lectures, or I listen to them talk, or I, li- or I read something that they've written, and I initially fact-check some of the things that you know are sort of red flags, or I wonder, hey, is that true? If they turn out to be correct, then I, I trust them to some degree. Now, I still am going to ask questions and so on, no matter what, but people over the course of their careers, their public careers, tend to tend to accumulate some kind of pattern in the way that they speak and how reasonable and logical and correct they are. And it's the people that are the most reasonable, the most logical, and the most correct that I pay the most attention to. So that's kind of a side note. But um, back to our manifesto. Uh, I guess the point of what I was trying to say just now is that so far, our manifesto, our El Paso shooter and his manifesto, uh, has not fared well in the initial critical thought exercise that we're doing here. If we read his words, there are a lot of unanswered questions, and there are a lot of incorrect facts. Here are some notes and thoughts I have, and here's where I want to take on a few of his 
uh, here's where I want to get into his style and his actual argument and determine if it is factually accurate, uh, which we've already determined it's not. But to further determine its factual accuracy, whether or not it's sound and um, whether or not it's sound and valid, and then of course whether his conclusion um, is correct. So his idea of lowering the population through mass murder to quote save unquote the planet and the white race flies in the face of secular humanist morality, our right to life, and his own proclaimed love for Texas, America, and the people therein. So that was just the first thought that came to my mind when I started analyzing him stylistically and his his um, overall argument. Our shooter's reasoning and logic abilities are terribly flawed. His conclusions are riddled with non sequiturs and, and prefaced with unsound and invalid arguments. He makes a lot of statements as if they were facts and does nothing to provide any supporting evidence. So due to the multitude of statements made and the time it would take to debunk all of them, I'm just going to focus on two themes. The first being his reasoning style, and the last being the validity, soundness, and, and the conclusion of his argument. So as a critical thinker, it's imperative that we all engage with this type of material in order to assess its validity, truthfulness, and logical correctness. Sadly, there is little to work with here, as his mind is clearly all over the place and nearing a frenzy. But a few things stand out immediately as red flags as you read his words. These are stylistic red, red flags that we can look for in anyone's presentation of their argument. First and foremost are the statements that he makes without any evidence to support their truthfulness. So just taking one at random, simply stating that race mixing, that's in quotes, destroys genetic diversity as true without any supporting evidence or further explanation is a red flag. This should lead the critical thinker to ask a multitude of questions like, well, how does he know this? There's epistemology right there. Where can I find the facts to support this? And what is our current scientific understanding of race as it's related to genetic diversity? This is exactly the pattern and process that I took to determine what he was talking about and whether or not it was true. It turns out it wasn't true. Questions like these need to be answered before any conclusions can be made. He is, in fact, using this as support for his overall conclusion. And if his support is inaccurate or factually incorrect, his conclusion is going to be inaccurate and factually incorrect. Moving on, the second red flag is his use of sloppy language. So sloppy language is used heavily in other arguments, especially religious ones. Um, use of words like the soul or spirit or ghost, as if we have an understanding of what these words mean, should put anyone on their guard. Um, he fails to define many of his words throughout the manifesto. His claim that America is rotting from the inside out is not explained in any detail. This is this is one of the examples of sloppy language. What does he mean by rotting? His manifesto is full of sloppy language like this, and he fails it to explain it to us and make it clear exactly what he exactly to what he is referring. So here the reader is supposed to plug in their own definition. This is a huge red flag. Any sloppy language that you assume you understand what he means without him defining exactly what he means is a red flag 
that the person that you're talking to is somehow trying to deceive you. So anytime the reader is expected to supply definitions to the writer's argument, you can bet that the argument is false, or at least should be very suspect. Uh, You know, I can say more about this, but sloppy language is something that people use all the time. It's very frustrating. That's why most times when you see two people trying to have a, a truthful and reasonable argument, they will start with defining words. Um, and they'll start with that so that they now have an agreement on what this word means, and so that when they construct their logical syllogisms or their argument, that both sides understand what they're saying when they use words like a ghost, or, I mean, you can't define a ghost. We have no idea what a ghost is. We've never tested a ghost. We've never caught a ghost. We've never sampled a ghost. There's been no independent verification of ghosts, so on and so on. But if you're going to use a word like arbitrary, we need to determine exactly what you mean by that word. Our manifesto is very suspect because of this sloppy language and his reliance on us to plug in our definition for his language. Lastly, he jumps around a lot in his reasoning. He changes topics often and draws on base assumptions that he hasn't established as supported by evidence. So to a logical thinker critically examining his words, this should put you on your guard. Uh, By introducing a wide array of topics that are based on assumptions that aren't yet clear and not yet established as true, the critical thinker can conclude that the shooter is at worst lying, intentionally trying to deceive you, and at best poorly informed and inarticulate. So he may just be dumb or naive, Um, but he may also be trying to trick you. Uh, The tactic of having a wide array of topics that are just sort of blasted through in a blistering fashion is called the gish gallop and is designed to overwhelm the reader that may or may not have the time or inclination to research and verify the claims being made. It's also a tactic that used in debate. I believe it was coined for a debater, uh, a debater named Gish. It's widely recognized that one can make a series, let's say a dozen false statements and present that as their case to the other side of the debate. And they can do that in a short period of time. So one can present, let's say, a dozen disingenuous or false arguments in a very quick or a very short amount of time. And then the other side has the burden of breaking down all of those points and disproving them, which takes a lot more time. So what ends up happening and why this is used as a tactic is somebody will do a gish gallop. Uh, you see this all the time in uh, apologetics. Somebody will do a, a gish gallop, and then their interlocutor will attempt to debunk one of, let's say, the five or ten things that the that the um, apologist said. Then the apologist can come back and say, well, he didn't answer these other ten questions, so he must be wrong. He didn't even address this, right? So it seems like a fault on the other side, but it is not. It's a specific tactic used to confuse and deflect. Um, Here's the problem. Many people tend to believe what other people say without much verification. This is a mistake. And to 
I, I, I call upon you, the listener now, to employ you. I employ you to look at people's arguments and claims in this way to help hone your critical thinking skills. So look for these red flags in the news articles you read, in the pundits, the talking heads that you see on TV and elsewhere. These are huge signs that the person you're listening to is disingenuous or at the very least terribly informed. Okay, so now that we have identified some of the initial red flags in the manifesto, let's take the main thrust of his argument head-on to see if it's valid, sound, and therefore correct morally and logically. Um, So his argument boils down to this. White America is currently being, quote, replaced, unquote, systematically by Hispanic immigrants. This replacement is being orchestrated by our government, which is run by corporations. We have many other problems to account for and fix, like the control of our government by corporations, the American lifestyle and its impact on the environment, automation's impact on jobs, and genetic diversity. He then concludes that Hispanic immigrants are the population in America most likely to exacerbate these problems. His solution is to reduce the number of Hispanic immigrants by shooting them, which he claims our Constitution gives him the right to do. Okay, so let's break this down critically. Um, it's a little bit hard to do it because he's, as I said before, he, he's sort of all over the board. Um, but I, as I stated in, in the fact-checking section of the podcast, um, many of his initial statements and beliefs are evident, evidently false. So his replacement conspiracy theory, this, this is a conspiracy theory that he has bought into uh, that I described in more detail in the first part of this, of, of this series, um, is completely unfounded and therefore not a safe assumption to make as a starting off point. As with any exercise in critical thought, one's assumptions need to be supported by evidence and verified. He cannot do this to support replacement theory and takes it as a given instead. Immediately, his first statement and his first sort of supporting evidence for why he did what he did, his first factor in making his decision as to whether or not he should shoot people, is not only a crackpot conspiracy theory, but unfalsifiable and therefore completely useless as far as how, as far as decision making. So this is his first mistake believing in replacement theory. His explanation of our problems, walking through them again, corporate control of the government, our lifestyles impact, our lifestyle impacts on environment and automation's eventual impact on jobs are all valid complaints and worth further investigation and understanding. However, he fails to link any of these problems to the Hispanic community using evidence. According to the shooter's own words, the Hispanic population are acting just as the whites are in relation to these problems, or are victims of them just as much as the whites. He's not saying it's Hispanic corporations that are controlling our government, say from Colombia. Nor is he saying that Hispanics are doing anything to further the progress of our economy towards automation. He's not linking those two things together. In his narrative, they're victims to these changes, just the same as everybody else. The one point he makes that has some validity is how the American lifestyle affects the planet and its destruction. So he states that Hispanics are going to be the most likely to cause this destruction as they assimilate into our American culture and consume at the same level as the whites. 
Here he identifies his bias. So he's willing to let the whites destroy the country's resources, but he draws an arbitrary line with the Hispanics. He falsely sees them as not of European descent, uh, when in fact they are of European descent. The reason they speak Spanish is because Spain, people from Spain, which is in Europe, settled in Central and South America and in Mexico. Anyway, um, so he falsely sees them as not of European descent and singles them out as particularly bad actors. Instead of addressing the issue of overconsumption directly, he labels it as Hispanic overconsumption. Now, I took a little bit of liberty there. He didn't say Hispanic overconsumption, but he is singling out Hispanics as bad actors and the most likely to exacerbate this issue. So I'm going to call that Hispanic overconsumption. This bias demonstrates his racism, a racism that he denies in his manifesto, rather offhandedly near the end. And any time a bias is demonstrated um, or just blatantly blurted out, this should put any reader on alert that his conclusions are more likely to be wrong than they are to be correct. So his conclusion is to kill Hispanics. Since this problem since these problems are neither related to Hispanics directly nor exclusive to Hispanics and not supported by evidence, to kill them doesn't seem to address the issues he's identified. So the only issue that he that can be linked to Hispanics directly is the issue of overconsumption. But as I've pointed out, this is something that every American does. This isn't a Hispanic issue. It's an American issue. It's not possible to ascertain who the overconsumers are based on their race or ethnicity. So singling out Hispanics fails to address his concern with the environmental issues that we face. Even if we grant that the best way to save the planet is for everybody to consume less, we still can't get to mass murder as the solution. So even if we grant that the best way to save the planet is for everybody to consume less, we still can't get to mass murder as the solution. So mass murder would be just one of many possible potential solutions, one that raises more questions than it answers. And it seems to me that mass murder is a solution that we would not implement because of its moral implications and the access we have to other alternatives that would be far better for the planet and humanity. Would we really be willing to throw away our humanity just to ensure that the survivors are able to consume at existing levels? Would we be willing to cause the kind of mass suffering that mass murder creates? Would we even want to exist in a world where we were responsible for such an atrocity? No morally normal person would even consider this as an option. Also, this conclusion is a non sequitur. That is to say that it doesn't follow logically from his premises. Why not address corporate influence on politics directly? Why not lower consumption of fossil fuels by investing in renewable energy? Why not invest in education to help people secure their future when AI and automation start to change our economy? Lastly, why not invest in the third world to bring them up to the living standards we enjoy, thereby lowering their birth rates naturally? In fact, if you go out and research how we are going to address the Earth's overpopulation issue, which I do believe is an, is an issue, 
Um, there are multitude of ways we could do this without murdering anybody. So lastly, I want to address the moral implications of his conclusion, which is, I think, where most of us want to go with this, right? I mean, we feel that what he did was wrong because we feel it. It's in our, it's in our bones, right? Well, moral intuition is one thing, but it is supported uh, by evidence generally and can be traced back to our evolutionary history. So, Let's take a look at what he's saying and the moral implications of his actions. So if we were to grant him all of his points as true, we still wouldn't be correct to murder Hispanics. So here's why, right? Murder flies in the face of our unalienable right to life. It is an offense to our humanity, our human solidarity, and it can be demonstrated to be incorrect. You might be wondering how I can demonstrate that murder is incorrect, a false conclusion, or immoral. Well, one only needs to look to the evidence and then assess the wishes of the victim. So if the victim didn't want to die, then we can rightfully call it murder. And that's, in, that's across the board. Any person that doesn't want to die who is then killed has been murdered. In the same way that any person that doesn't want to be penetrated and then is can be said to have been raped. Once a victim is established, then we can all observe the objective evidence for ourselves to verify its validity. So in the case of mass murder, we can look at the evidence of all the dead bodies, the bullet wounds, the cardiovascular trauma, and the lifelessness of the bodies. Clearly, the evidence suggests wrongdoing. Furthermore, we can assume that based on our previous understanding of pain, that these victims likely suffered immensely. This is yet more evidence of immoral behavior. Lastly, we can assess the trauma, pain, and suffering experienced by the survivors. Not just the survivors of the attack itself, but those mothers and brothers and children of those slain. All of this evidence supports our right to life and its moral validity. What else could? Clearly, we can support the immorality of this action with the evidence of past actions that were similar uh, with the evidence of the act that he actually took, the killings that he committed, this, the mass murder that he committed. And we can invalidate his conclusion as not only being inco- incorrect in truth, but also immoral and incorrect. So I want to thank you for listening. I hope that breaking this manifesto down and exposing it Uh, for the lies and deceit and invalid, unsound, and incorrect argument that it is. Uh, I do think it's important that we wrestle with these types of arguments. This is out there in the world. People believe this stuff. People think that this is logical and reasonable. And this person thought that it was a jumping off point to commit mass murder. Now, we have to combat these ideas if we want to stop mass murder. We have to put the social pressure on people like this to assimilate to our culture. That is the culture of moral, morally normal people who value evidence, who value 
humanity. Take secular humanism to heart. We're not the psychopaths, but somehow we have to convince the psychopaths to, to join us, to, to, to not be psychopaths, right? So far, we don't have any kind of cure for this kind of mental uh, disease. And I'm not convinced that this person was a psychopath, but something has to be done. We have to do something to keep these people in check, to welcome them into our communities, to assimilate them with the diversity that we see in our country. This type of person, the El Paso shooter, complains that Hispanics are going to change our culture. And what he's really saying is is that he's not willing to assimilate to the changes that are just going to happen. It's not like anybody's orchestrating these changes. This is just the way the world changes. People move. People seek out what they want. And many people seek out the United States to be their home because they think it is the best place to live or they think it's their best option. I tend to agree with them on many accounts. But it's people like this, the El Paso shooter, that will not assimilate to this American culture that we live in. He's claiming he's got his own culture and that it's under threat. And if he's talking about a psychopath culture who worships guns and President Trump and is willing to go out and murder, flying in the face of humanity, as he did, then I guess, yeah, we are, we are, he is under assault. We are out there to stop him, uh, but, but not in the same way that he's assaulting us. I'm looking to interact with these kinds of ideas and bring these types of people over to our side so that they can understand and take on board secular humanism, so that they can see that the right to life is something that everybody has, and that to commit an assault like this is an assault on humanity. It's an assault on society and societal strength. I guess that's all I have to say about it. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I'm sure there'll be more. I'm hoping there'll be more. I wanted to put a word out there to our female listeners uh, here at the Secular Hubcast. We are looking to get more female podcasters involved. I'm going to be doing a series uh, on women. Um, I'm going to cover an array of topics, um, but I also want more women on the show. And so if you're a listener and you're a female and you'd like to come on the show and share your perspective with us, we would really appreciate it. Uh, Let me also just put that invite out there to anybody that has a perspective that they would like to share. You don't have to be a woman to come on the Secular Hubcast. Of course, we're looking for some women to be more active in the the podcast, uh, and we appreciate their view and perspective. But we're also looking for anybody from the Secular Hub or the Secular Community, or even people outside of the community that even people outside of the community that enjoy the podcast, if they'd like to get involved, like to get on the show, we'd love to have you, especially if you have a specific topic. So I wanted to put that out there for you guys. Look for those new shows. Uh, Please keep listening. Email us, write us, comment on our posts, and uh, enjoy your Sunday. Thank you very much. (laughs) 